Well, good morning again. I know I've already been up here three times, and it's uh, quite the service, launch service, commemorating the Queen, doing the response from last week, a little, little potpourri church today. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little smorgasbord. Step up and eat all that you want and be well fed. Sound good? That's right. Are you out there? All right, good, good. Um, So uh, grab your Bibles, as Jordan said, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 6, resuming a series um, that we uh, started last year. And of course, one one of the things that we um, have not yet talked about here today, but today is uh, September 11th, and so uh, it's the 21st uh, anniversary of the attacks on 9-11 in the United States. And uh, one of the things that, um, uh, that most people have not really put together, unless you've been around here a long, long time, is that our church launched on September the 16th, 2001, so five days after uh, 9-11. And it was, to say the least, when you're launching a new church, the way that we launched the church, you know, there's a lot of fanfare, there's, you know, uh, very expressive worship. It, that's the thing you kind of want to do. You're launching kind of with a, with a bang. And of course, uh, that wasn't appropriate at all on that Sunday as we launched the church. And so it was a rather subdued uh, first service, and providentially, uh, the series that we had decided to do uh, to launch uh, the church was in John 10. It's about the shepherd, hearing the shepherd's voice, and it was very comforting, and it was perfect uh, for the occasion. So we changed nothing, uh, really, in terms of the teaching of God's Word that Sunday. But I think the thing we all realize, especially those of us who have been around long enough to remember the events of 9-11, is that the world changed that week. It changed uh, dramatically, and the effects of those changes are being felt to this day, And we remain, um, as a people, uh, aware of just how tumultuous uh, life really uh, is and can be and continues to be. And if I can make one comment about the passing of Queen Elizabeth, it would be this, that the the loss of the Queen on Thursday is such a deeply felt loss for so many. I won't pretend that it's for everybody, but for so many, largely because... um, she embodied constancy in a world that is beset by trauma and tragedy. She was someone we could count on, and she was there, and she stabilized. She helped to stabilize things for us. And what we know about the day that we live in now, I think there's several phrases we could just tag on to our times and see if you don't agree with these. We know... um, political polarization. We know economic fragility, moral ambiguity, unceasing conflicts, crushing inequities, and an abject vulnerability to the smallest of viruses. I mean, that describes the day that we live in currently. And I know that's a, you know, it's launch Sunday, it's supposed to be happy and charge the people up for new ministry year. And that's a bit of a Debbie Downer to go through a list like that. But as we re-enter the book of Revelation, that's the backdrop for resuming this series. It's, it's, it's punctuating the world's need of the gospel when we look at this. And in fact, it punctuates not only the world's need, but it punctuates our role in that why we exist as a church. Because at the outset of this new ministry year, let me declare it again, that we have no interest in establishing a comfortable Christian club for you to attend. 
We are here, we exist, we have gathered to fulfill the mission that Jesus Christ gave us in this world, and that is to deliver the hope of the gospel to all of the people who don't even have it on their mind to come here today. That's why we exist, because the world is in such need of hope. And in fact, Revelation, when you think about the reason why, ask yourself the question, whenever you're studying the Bible, why was this book written? What did the author intend in sending it to the original recipients? Understanding the Bible starts with that question. And Revelation was given to the first century readers not to lay out in detail all that was going to happen in the future so that they could endlessly talk about whether this means that or the other thing. But it was given to them to provide comfort and hope, comfort and hope in the midst of their own traumas and tragedy. They needed to be encouraged. And God said, I'm going to show them what it's going to be like and I'm going to give them a reason to be encouraged in the midst of a world that's filled with trauma and tragedy. And when you think about that, why the author, why God gave it through John to these first century churches in Western Turkey, why did he give it to them? For the same reason that he wants us to read and study it today. In the midst of our own trials, our own tragedy, our own traumas, we need to be encouraged. So we don't study Revelation to try and parse the future. We read it and we studied it to be, study it to be encouraged. It speaks to us today. As we look at Revelation chapter 6, because we've been in this for a bit now, and, and all of the messages in, in the first five chapters are available in the sermon archive on our website. If you want to catch up on any of those, if you missed any of those, but as we approach chapter 6, we're still in the throne room of God, which was described for us in, in chapters 4 and 5. This incredible, mind-bending, three-dimensional description of powerful angelic beings, of the Lamb of God, of the thunderous voices of those speaking out, and the awe-inspiring worship. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, the focus becomes this scroll that's in the right hand of the one who's sitting on the throne. In the right hand of God himself, he's holding a scroll, and the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And it's determined that only the lamb can break those seals and read what's in the scroll, and the scroll itself will be the unleashing, the unveiling of everything that's going to happen when God culminates all things. And so as we focus on this scroll in chapter 6 and the breaking of these seals, this starts the process of the final judgment that will come when the scroll is actually read. And the question is asked right at the end of chapter 6, as the first six seals are broken open, the question is asked, who can stand? Who, who can survive this? Who can stand in the face of all that is to come? And that is asked and answered in Revelation chapter 6. And so let me read it for us uh, now. You follow along in your Bible as I read these 17 verses of Revelation 6. This is the Apostle John speaking 
as he saw these visions. He said, I, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the live, third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death. Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on, on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Well, that's the question. Who can stand in the face of a decaying world and the imminent judgment of God? The question I would want all of us to be able to answer here today, can you stand in the face of this? Will, will I stand in the face of this? To this point in the book of Revelation, in fact, chapter one, we had this stirring setup and this amazing picture of Jesus Christ, this description of the son of man. Chapters 2 and 3 were these seven letters to seven real churches in Western Turkey. Church letters that called on them to be conquerors, a theme that will come up later. And then, as I said previously, chapters 4 and 5 are this depiction of the throne room of heaven. And then with chapter 6, finally, we get to the place where there's going to be an unveiling, a revealing of what will happen in the days to come future events beginning to unfold, but not just future events, but future events that have earthly impacts. 
And if you're taking notes right now, I'll give you a couple of passages just to jot down here because there are great parallels between what we're seeing here in Revelation 6 and what Jesus taught in the Gospels. Matthew 24 and 25, the parallel passages are in Luke 13 and, and uh, sorry, Luke 21 and Mark 13. That's called the Olivet Discourse. And he talks a lot about the end times and it fits right here. Much of it fits right here in Revelation chapter 6. Now note the opening, verse 1, the opening of the seven seals. We have a picture to show you here, and I don't, we don't know what the scroll looked like, of course. We only have the description of it. We know it was written on both sides. We know it's a scroll, so it was rolled. In the case of this scroll, the leather straps around it, and each sealed with a wax seal, seven of those seals. So what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 6 is the breaking of six of those seven seals. What we're not seeing is what's contained in the scroll itself. Everything we're seeing in chapter 6 is merely preparatory for the actual unveiling of what God is going to do in the world. And so as we think about this scroll, which, by the way, it's in chapter 5, verse 1, where we first see this. The scroll is in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. These six seals reflect at least partially life now. The 2,000 years since the revelation was given to us until this day and on until the time when that seventh seal is broken. And, and so what we're seeing here, at least in part, not completely, are some of the things that we're living through currently. And what we'll also see with the seven seals and then the seventh seal is actually the seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet is actually the seven bowls. And as we see all of that unfold before us, there's going to be an increasing intensity of events. And this is exactly what we would expect as the world increasingly rejects anything related to the Word of God. And hostility grows toward Christians in the church. And that's certainly true right up until the time that the seventh seal is open, unleashing the trumpets and the bowls. And one of the principles that we follow in, in, in the interpretation of the apocalyptic literature, whether it's in Revelation or elsewhere, the gospel accounts I just gave you and also into the Old Testament accounts, one of the principles that we follow is, is that of partial fulfillment and a partial fulfillment of what we see here. We go like, that sounds like things that are happening now, but it doesn't sound like the complete thing like, that, that, that we've fully experienced the complete thing of what it's talking about. Partial fulfillment of what we see here does not prohibit an ultimate and complete fulfillment at the end of the age. So we can see what looks like a fulfillment that isn't quite yet the complete fulfillment of these prophecies. In fact, um, to that point, Jesus said this in the Olivet Discourse. This is in Matthew 24, 8. Jesus talks about these things these future things as the beginning of birth pangs. It's a, it's a pregnancy illustration, the beginning of birth pangs. So what we're reading here in Revelation 6 is the beginning of birth pangs. So a pregnancy illustration, it means that these, at, at, at best, these are early contractions. This is labor just starting. But the contractions are still very far apart and not terribly intense. This is long before active labor, long before pushing, long before the actual birth. And if I can extend the metaphor even further, there could even be a sense that this is before, like what we're experiencing now is even before early labor starts. Because the reality is when a woman is pregnant, she knows she's pregnant. 
even before contractions start, and her body changes, and life changes, and she, she has to change habits and how she uh, conducts herself. There's an awareness that something is coming even before the contractions. But Jesus said, the things we're going to read in Revelation 6, what we hear in the Olivet Discourse, these are the beginning, the early labor. That's where we are now. And the first four seals tell us of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which may be familiar to you, and we just read through it. And we're going to bypass the first horseman just for now in the latter part of verse 1 and, chapter, and verse 2, and we're going to go to the next one. So let's, this is what we're looking at. Here's the question. Who can stand in the face of, we're going to talk about some specifics now, who can stand in the face of the violence, the violence that we see in the world? Notice in verse 3, the second seal reveals another horse. Verse 4, it's, it's bright red and it's rider. Notice the language here. The rider was permitted. Was permitted. Permitted by whom? Permitted by God. The devil and his agents have no authority to do anything apart from God granting them that authority. That's a principle built right out of Job chapter 1, by the way. So this writer was permitted, you can insert the phrase there, by God, notice, to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now listen, we live, I don't think I need to make a big argument for the fact that we live in a violent world. Now you can be grateful, you and I can be grateful today that we live in this country, Amen. Because there's a lot of countries in the world where it's not safe to live. It's not safe to go outside your home. It's not safe to go to the market. We are very, very blessed. And we tend to complain way too much about the place that we live. Because God has greatly blessed this country and the West in general. We live, though, in a violent world. And from the moment that Cain murdered his brother, bloodshed has defined human history. I found these uh, statistics on several websites, um, and you could source this yourself uh, with a simple Google search. But over the last 12 months, in the last calendar year, um, there are six wars um, happening in the world, six full-blown wars where the casualty rate over the last 12 months was greater than 10,000 people, both uh, military and collateral um, damage. There are another six conflicts where the fatalities are over 1,000, between 1,000 and 10,000. There are 38 other conflicts and wars where the death toll was less than 1,000. In total, currently, at this very moment, there are 61 wars and conflicts happening around the world. 61. Now, that's out there. We live in a country where we hardly feel the effects of, of warfare. After 9-11, we certainly felt the effects of the war on terror. Canadian soldiers went overseas to fight the war on terror. There are memorials to those who gave their life in doing so. We've been affected more recently because we know people. Ukraine, it's Europe, it's the West, it's different, it feels different, but still it doesn't affect us terribly. But then we have, much closer to home, these mass shootings just across the border. 
But mass killings aren't just for the Americans. Just last week in Saskatchewan, 10 victims and the two perpetrators dead, 12 people live in a violent world. Despite talk of peace, despite 70 years of the United Nations and all of the dollars that are put into policing and deterrence and education and the judicial system and and reforming people, despite all of that, the world is still very violent. It's a dangerous place. And humanity is unable to stem the tide. Why? Not for lack of some effort to do so, but unable to stem the tide because of what we read right here. The rider on the bright red horse has been permitted by God to take peace from the earth. Who can stand? Who can stand secondly in the face of economic disparity? Verse 5, the third seal was an invitation to a black horse. Its rider uh, was holding a pair of scales in his hand to measure out grain, food. This is the same kind of thing we do in the produce department uh, or at the butcher shop. We're weighing out the food. We're going to give a fair price for the food that we're purchasing as it's weighed out. But a voice in the midst now, a voice in the midst of the four living creatures is saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius. The details don't matter. What really matters here is that there's no longer any fairness in the system. The end times will see, or at least the lead up to the end times, will see scarcity in the availability of the very staple items, food items. And there will be rampant inflation, not the, not, the, not the 8% inflation that we're all whining about here. But inflation at a level that we have never known. You know, we saw this uh, somewhat during the pandemic of the last two years with other uh, shortages. We all experienced that, at least to some extent. Um, And that not everyone, and I would just say this because the point of this is the disparity, not everyone was treated equally during the pandemic. Not everybody went through this in the same way. The wealthy and even the middle class were far more resistant to the economic uh, fallout of the restrictions than those who were in the working class. And God's point in all of this, in giving us this prophecy is, This disparity will only grow worse in the last days and in the lead up to the last days. By the way, as we think about these four horsemen, this is a good time just to say this. We think about these four horsemen. We often think of the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all the pictures we've seen and they're riding out in judgment. And and you have to know that isn't so much God judging through the four horsemen. They're not really judging the the world, the the earth, so much as God's just saying, fine, you want to sin? Go ahead and sin. You want to experience the full weight of, of what, the, in essence, what this is, is God's, God removing his gracious hand that stems the tide of sin every single day. And God is saying, have at it. Let sin have its full effect on the world. 
And that's what the sending of the four horsemen really represents. And one commentator said, and this is always the result because sin is always, Osborne said, sin is always self-destructive. And God says, you want to enjoy your sin? Fine, enjoy your sin, but you will self-destruct under the burden, the full burden and weight of your own sin. Who can stand? Who can stand in the face of of disasters and and disease? Verse 7, this fourth seal, the fourth living creature calls out. And this reveals, verse 8, a pale horse. Pale is a very tame way of describing this word. It's actually this this, um, sickly yellow-green color. The best example I can give you is what comes out of my grandson's nose every once in a while. Like, this is a really heavy message. I felt like I just needed to release the the valve a little bit there. But I wanted to help you get the color. Do everybody know what color I'm talking about here? That's the color of this horse. It's a pale horse, a a, a sickly yellow-green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and uh, Hades followed him. Hades, that's the Greek god of the underworld, but the word came to simply mean the grave. And so this is Batman and Robin, uh, Death and Hades, um, hanging out together. And they were given authority by whom? Given authority by God over a fourth of the earth. So God is saying, you can, you can take a fourth of the earth, but, but 75% no. So he's limiting them still over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. There's a lot packed into that. I can't cover all of it, but today there are about 30 million people. Today, 30 million people are experiencing alarming hunger. Severe levels of food insecurity and malnutrition exist in northeastern Nigeria, in South Sudan, in Somalia, and Yemen. 10 million, one-third of the 30 million people facing this are facing emergency and famine conditions. That information comes from Oxfam. We don't have to think about across the seas, around the world, that happening. It's happening right here in our own city. There are many people who are suffering from food insecurity. It's a serious issue. More hungry people being fed. If you talk to the leaders at the, at the Bayside Mission or at, at our food bank right across the road or, or, or at the Busby Center, they're all going to tell you they're feeding more people than they have ever felt fed before. But this is nothing compared to what's going to come. And we got a glimpse into that over the last two and a half years. We got a glimpse into how weak and frail how vulnerable our supply chain is. God was giving a taste of of not only the famine, but, but but of the pandemic and the pestilence to come. I mean, we experienced over the last two and a half years a very small example and I don't want to trivialize it all, 6.5 million people died of COVID-19 or with it. But, but that was a very small example of what could be. A very small example, in fact, of what has happened in history with various plagues and pandemics. 
and what is going to happen at the end. I read a very interesting book. It's, it's essentially a history book on the Spanish flu. Uh, the book is curiously called Pale Rider. In uh, the subtitled The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Now, what's very curious about this book, because you would think about a book like that, oh, someone capitalized on the pandemic to write a history of the other pandemic 102 years ago, 104 years ago. And, and, and when you're reading the book, you would think that, except that this book was published in 2019. And when you read the book, if you, if you pick it up and, and read it, you're going to see so many parallels to what we've just gone through. That the pattern of how the Spanish flu spread and how people were reacting to it and, and all of that is so exactly the same as what we just encountered with COVID-19. But Laura Spiney, the author, is, is so interesting. She says this, she notes that when, when, you, when you ask people, what was the greatest cost of human life what was the biggest disaster in terms of the loss of human life in the 20th century? The vast majority of people are going to say one of the world wars, or they're going to say Stalin's purges in Soviet Russia. That's what most people are going to answer. And they'd be wrong. Because the greatest disaster in terms of loss of human life in the 20th century was the Spanish flu with perhaps as many as 100 million people worldwide, you have to add up the casualty rates, the death rates of every single war in the 20th century to equal the number of people who died of the Spanish flu. Not just the world wars, every single war that happened in the 20th century to equal the death toll of the Spanish flu. Now, I, don't want, I, don't, I know you don't want to hear this, all I'm saying is what we went through is not the thing that they went through 100 years ago, and it's not the thing that we're going to go through. And I know you don't want to hear this, but we dodged a bullet with COVID-19. We think it was so horrible and so hard. It was nothing. Something far worse has come. Who can stand? Now the passage takes a shift here, away from the four horsemen and away from what's going to happen in the earth in general and speaking now primarily to believers. Who can stand in the face of persecution and martyrdom? Verse 9, the fifth seal, John saw under the altar... In this heavenly throne room scene, he sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. That's a key phrase in Revelation. You see it in chapter 1, you see it in chapter 20, we see it here again in chapter 6 about those who, who, who were committed to the word of God and were committed to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so this is Christian martyrs and they're crying out, verse 10, with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long... How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I mean, they're looking. They've been slain for the sake of the gospel, and they're looking for final vindication. In the meantime, they were each given a white robe, symbol of purity, and told to rest a little longer until... 
unbelievably until God says, you know, I just rest a little while longer because it's not done yet. The number, verse 11 continues, the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete. I want you to wait because I'm I'm going to be adding to your number. There's a lot more people who have to die for the sake of the gospel. Those who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I mean, it's so terrible to think about, but God says to them, there are more martyrs to come. Now, again, we're flipping back and forth here, and we'll talk more about this as we go on in the series, but we're, we're seeing at times a scene of eternity that's complete and stands outside of time, and then there are occasions where we're looking at things that are happening right down on the timeline, and they're being given in a sequential order, really for our benefit. But all these things in Revelation are complete, and that is the source of our confidence in God. Again, there are countless thousands, maybe millions over the last 2,000 years that have been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, but it is not just a historic issue. It continues to this day. Lifeway Research reports this. In the past year, 360 million Christians, or one in seven believers around the world, suffered significant persecution for their faith. Every day in 2021, every day, in 2021, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. I mean, you got up this morning and got yourself ready and made your way to this great place to be with these great people and you didn't feel any threat at all at coming to worship Jesus in this place. But around the world today, as we worship the Lord, and to, we're, later we're going to have lunch with our families and we're going to hang out for the rest of the day and just think throughout this day, Almost every hour, someone is going to die simply because they went to church this morning. A brother and sister in Christ who will be ushered into the throne room of God to be placed under the altar to await the vindication that God promises them. With close to 6,000 total martyrs, 2021 saw a 24% increase in Christians killed for their faith. under the altar, wearing white robes, awaiting God's vindication. And there's encouragement here. Again, this is the purpose of the book. Encouragement here for those who have paid a price on earth for their faith. For those who will yet pay the price for their faith. God sees and takes into his care all those who sacrifice their lives for the word of God and for the witness of Jesus Christ. The picture is stunning. It's, it's the victims of persecution are pictured here under the altar on which they were sacrificed. Their blood spilt. Just as the blood of their Lord and Savior was spilt. Now, the devil and his agents in the moment, on the timeline, as this is all playing out, the devil and his agents, they think they won. We eradicated the Christians. But God will have the final word. Not Mao, not Stalin, 
not the Catholic kings of Europe who put the Protestant reformers to death, not the Islamic and Hindu extremists today. The blood of the martyrs will be avenged by our God. And we need this message. Even in our comfort, our current comfort, we need this message. Why? Because it's going to get far worse for us in the days ahead. Again, recall, Revelation was written to first century Christians who were facing persecution of their own. A persecution that we are unfamiliar with in 21st century Canada. I mean, there were some Christians over the past couple of years who were claiming that they were being persecuted by their government. And I will say with the greatest of confidence that there was no persecution during the pandemic. There was a government seeking to manage a global crisis. Christians were not centered out. They were not persecuted. Just because we disagree with the government, we often disagree with the government. I often disagree with the government. But just because the government and I disagree on matters relating to faith or freedom does not mean they're persecuting me. And I would never want us to compare what happened in the last two years with what we're reading here about people who are genuinely being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so these readers needed an assurance that what they were being asked to do in following Christ, remaining steadfast for the gospel, they needed to know that this was going to be worth it. So God gives the vision to John and John writes it to them so that they will know God will vindicate me if I have to give my life for him. And it was common for those who declared allegiance to Christ in the first century and at other times in history to lose family. If you follow Christ, you're not part of this family. If you follow Christ, no one's going to go to your business. If you follow Christ, we can no longer be friends. People would lose their freedom and, of course, they would lose their lives because they would refuse to renounce Christ. And by contrast, we follow Christ today and we're asked to sacrifice by comparison, not at all. Though I will say the trajectory of our society is such that these decisions will soon be upon us. Who will stand? A day is coming when you will not be able to keep your job and follow Christ. A day is coming when your family will disown you and your friends will distance themselves from you. A day is coming when you may in fact lose your freedom and none of this should take us by surprise as Christians because God has already told us it's going to happen. How could we possibly be shocked when that day comes? Yet when these times come, here's what we're going to find out. It's going to sift out the people who are genuine followers of Christ. People right here this morning, people watching the live stream, the people who are the genuine followers of Christ, and those who are merely interested in being part of a comfortable Christian club. Because if you're just a club member, there's no way you're going to stand in the face of persecution. 
So that's the question. Who can stand in the face of all of this? And the answer also found in the text, those who await vindication of God, the vindication of God, which means in part, I do not take matters into my own hands. I trust God to work out all of these things in his time. So verse 12 introduces us to this sixth seal. And it provokes what one commentator described as severe disruptions of the created order. They're described here, the great earthquake, the sun becoming black as sackcloth, the full moon becoming like blood. We would think back on in history and we've had some earthquakes. Have we had a great earthquake? Has the, has the beyond a solar eclipse, has the sun really been blackened out? These things have not happened. And so they really stand as still future heading us toward that day. And it's difficult, in fact, to see how they would be symbolic for something else. Verse 13, the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Whatever this is, it it signals a a cataclysmic celestial event that strikes terror in the hearts of the inhabitants of earth. Verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. How does the sky vanish? Every mountain and island was removed from its place. I mean, I don't know what this is, but what what I can say is it's a wholesale global catastrophe beyond anything that could ever be imagined. Buist Fanning, one of the commentators I'm using for this series, said this, these severe disruptions point forward to the ultimate escalation soon to come. The dissolution of the present sky and earth in connection with the arrival of the new creation of Revelation 21 and 22 you got to hang on till the spring to hear those messages. It's going to be a rough ride through the winter. That's all I got to say. Seeing all of this, verse 15, they're watching. Who's watching? Look at verse 15. The kings, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful. They're watching this unfold now. And there's no denying because it is a global cataclysmic event. God finally has their attention. The events described will affect the entire populace of the earth. No one is exempt. Power, possessions, and privilege will exempt no one. Despots and dictators for sure. But also duly elected presidents and prime ministers and the wealthy power brokers that are behind their offices. You see, they've all... They've all failed to understand that their decisions and actions have eternal consequences. Even democratically elected political leaders who will often talk to us in times of elections about a future, we're providing a future for our children. They're the worst kind of pragmatists and they only think of their lives in four-year increments. They don't care about your children or your grandchildren. They care about the next four years, and that's it. They will all give account, not just the dictators, but the democratically elected presidents and prime ministers, and their voters will give an account. Just look at this. Verse 15 continues. Not just the powerful, not just the people at the top who are often exempt from these things, 
but everyone, slave and free, the middle class, the lower class, everyone is seeing what's happening in the earth. And knowing what's coming, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks, the mountains, fleeing as if they could. And then finding some shelter, then calling on the mountains and rocks, verse 16, to fall on them, to hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This, this is the moment in history where everyone on the earth, believer and unbeliever, realizes it's Yahweh. It's always been God. It's always been Christ. And seeing it for the first time, they're terrified. Because they know what it means. They say in verse 17, the great day of their wrath. Who's the there? The one who's seated on the throne and the lamb. The great day of their wrath, of vindication has come. And so they try to do the very same thing that the first sinners tried to do. Adam and Eve, they tried to hide. It's foolish and futile. They can't hide, even death can't save them. And it is these who are facing God's wrath who ask the question. They're the ones who ask the question, who can stand? And the answer is, no one, no one can stand apart from Christ. Because those who have Christ will, in fact, stand. And that's the comforting word. Because these who have faith in Christ, they have the firm hope of Christ's victory. We circle back now to verse 2, to that first horse, the white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. There are many different views of who or what this first horse is, what it symbolizes. It's very enigmatic. And commentators are all over the place on what this might mean. But I want to lay down as a principle before we look at this, that the same judgment that condemns one is life to another. The same judgment that condemns one is life to another. You see, this horse is different. The language is different. The language is not overtly negative, even though it speaks of conquering. And specifically, God is exercising his full sovereignty over the world with this horseman. He's laying aside the enemy that has occupied this land, God's land, for long enough. This horse is, in essence, the saving and vindicating gospel. It is the full effect of the message of redemption. It is, the, it is the triumphant procession of a conquering king. And again, that's exactly what we saw in the seven letters repeated over and over again. Are we going to conquer with Christ or not? And so for those who believe this image of the white horse 
This image offers life. But for many others, those who reject it, it represents death. Because when you think about it, conquering armies are, at the same time, liberators to some and vengeance to others. And at the cross and by the empty tomb, Jesus Christ conquered sin and death. And it is those who believe this by faith, who believe this gospel, this good news by faith, who will have the firm hope of Christ's victory. And you will have it no matter the intensity of the cataclysmic events that are happening in the world around you. The events do not matter. They don't affect us because we are in Christ. And so the question for all of us is simple. Do you have this hope in Christ's victory? Are you a conqueror with him? Because this represents the only means by which you can stand in the face of everything that's coming in this world. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, um, there is no doubt, we can feel it in the room, this is a heavy, heavy message. Father, you um, have ordained this for today, this moment for us to hear this word. And so God, I would pray first of all, for believers who are to read this book of Revelation and to be encouraged in the face of whatever we're going through in life. And God, I pray that there would be a commitment among those of us who believe to redouble our efforts, to, to, to dig in deeper into our faith, to be more committed to the things of Christ and the mission that you've entrusted to us, to be more confident, more filled with faith, more ready to see our Savior. And Father, I would pray for Christians around the world right now who are facing things that we are not facing or being pressed with respect to Jesus Christ and their testimony. I pray, God, that they would stand today for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And if they lose their lives, Father, their day of vindication is coming. And you have a white robe prepared for them. So give them strength and endurance in the face of that, Father. And God, I would pray also for any who are in the room or watching online, God, that, that if they don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, Father, I pray that they would hear the words of this revelation. And they would commit their life to Christ now, God. And I would pray that they would be terrified. They would realize the full extent of what we've talked about here today and be terrified that perhaps they would not be saved on the last day. God, this is a work that only your spirit can do, and I pray that he would do it now in our midst. I pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.